HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch, grass-fed beef raised on California's central coast. Now available online through Larder Meat Company. Learn more at hearstranch.com. This week on Meat and 3, we're talking about the United States' biggest crop. It's corn. They will always tell you that corn is like their family. Corn is their family. You treat corn like you would treat your family. These subsidy programs are supposed to be for really dealing with unexpected things that happen to farmers. Although in practice, a lot of times, farmers are actually paid farm subsidies for things that we can control and do expect. There's this constant warfare going on between the oil industry and the grain industry. Tune in to Meet and 3, available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Rutger DeVink. We'll talk to Rutger about winemaking in Virginia and RDV Vineyards. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Rutger DeVink is as tough as a Marine and as soft as a glass of Merlot. His family made their way to the United States from the Netherlands while a teenager. After leaving college to join the Marines and then working in telecommunications, Rutger pursued his love of agriculture with a wine apprenticeship and trips to Bordeaux and California. He was determined to find his own site to farm and make wine. Rutger ultimately settled in Virginia in around 2004, creating R.D. Vineyards on a hilltop in historic Delaplaine, about 50 miles west of Washington, D.C. Welcome to the Grape Nation, Rutger. Thanks so much, Sam. It's an honor to be here, and uh, thank you for inviting me on your program. Yep, we're talking to Rutger remotely via Zencaster. Um, Rutger normally is trouncing around his uh, vineyard in Virginia, but right now, where are you, Rutger? I'm in uh, Avon, Colorado. I just took some time to be in the mountains before our growing season. All right. That was a good idea because once you're back, it's head down. All right, Rutger, I want everyone to kind of know where you came from um, so it kind of frames where we're going. Um, Give our listeners a little background. Tell us about your journey in life and wine that got you to Virginia and and ultimately starting your own vineyard, RDV Vineyards. When did that happen? Well, the actual moment I decided, so I I guess just a little background. Um, My parents are both uh, from the Netherlands, and I spent my majority of my youth in Europe. Um, And I lived predominantly in Switzerland. And that was where my love of mountains came. But then in, right. um, for high school, my parents uh, moved to the United States and I you know, did my high school in New Jersey and then went off to uh, college. And I don't know what 
got me or motivated me to join the Marine Corps, but I thought that would be a good idea after college. Um, I joined the Marines and spent four years um, in the service. I got out and most of my friends from college uh, went to the business world. So I thought I'd follow that suit and my, my father and my brother are both in the business world. So I got my MBA at Northwestern and Kellogg uh, and then joined the, the corporate world. But quickly realized, Sam, that wearing a tie and going to the office every day wasn't in my call it, calling and decided in 2000 that I needed to shift gears. Um, and kind of in the Marine Corps, I, I learned really an important lesson. The Marine Corps isn't a job. It really is a profession. You don't go nine to five and you don't say, okay, I'm working to the weekends. It's just the way of life. And I right. really missed that. And in 2000, when they had that big you know, New Year's thing, I said, you know, I need to find a calling in life that I really just need to get back to that sense of, you know, a real passion to do something. Um, you know, there's no real agriculture in our background, but uh, there definitely has a sense of wine has always been around our table and been part of our, you know, my, my upbringing. And I thought, how cool would, would that be being involved with that? I really also love working outdoors and most importantly with my hands. So in 2000, I took a, a leap of faith and uh, started researching where to, to work. And actually, it was a, it's a great story. In 2001, I finally met somebody who said, hey, Rucker, before you, you know, leave the corporate world, why don't you apprentice somewhere? And she gave me two names. I was living in Virginia, and she gave two names, Luca at Barbersville and Jim Lott, Linden Vineyards, and said, go apprentice there before you make a big change. So to the summer of 2001, I apprenticed at Jim's place. Right. And within the first two weeks, Sam, I was like, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. But curiosity, you know, you have New York, Long Island, upstate Finger Lakes, you got Napa, you got Washington, Oregon. Why, why Virginia? Was the proximity right to where you were and what you were doing? So initially, initially the, the, the consultant, she worked, she's, she, who, who I asked about you know, getting into the wine world, she was partly in Virginia because her husband uh, was a photographer for National Geographic, but she consulted in California and also in, in Europe. But she said, just work here before you, you know, pick up and move. Um, right. So that was kind of the, be the beginning part of it. And I, I, you know, I was like, okay, but I had no ties really to Virginia. So right. I spent almost three years um, looking for a vineyard site. So in, that was in 2000 then in, or 2001. Then 2002, I was very lucky. I uh, got to go on a trip with a bunch of winemakers. There were 30 of them from, uh, throughout the United States to a trip to Bordeaux. And the first place we stopped was Cheval Blanc. Uh, <laughs> Pretty good. Yeah, no, I, I get out of the bus, uh, Sam, and the person who introduces himself is Case Van Leeuwen. And I said, Case, are you Dutch? And he, you know, starts speaking Dutch to me and we hit it off. And, um, he is one of the, you know, he's a, he's not only he, was he consulting at Chival Blanc, but he's also a professor at the university of Bordeaux and is a leading researcher on the concept of terroir. So right. he helped me really kind of, you know, tr you know, there's no magic secret or there's no magic formula, but really we started talking about what makes a great site for grapes. So I, I, you know, was able to have his knowledge and I started looking in Virginia, but I looked also in California. I, I looked for a vineyard site. We went to uh, the Santa Barbara area there. Right. We really was looking how we, we looked at the Santa Rita ABA wasn't established yet, but we were looking how close could we get to the to coast. I remember right. the other area, which we looked at was the Sonoma coast area. Right. Rugged and, you know, very cool, you know, not totally uh, discovered yet. Um, when you were at Cheval Blanc, I mean, had you already packed everything in? You were moving forward or you were juggling things? No, I was I, I think within the first week I, <laughs> I put my mind to it. I said, this is what I wanted to do. Okay. I didn't realize that I wanted to stay in Virginia, per se. But I was uh, I said, you know, the wine world, that that's what I want to do. I want to be. Did it? Didn't you work um, around D.C.? I mean, before you packed it in or no? Yeah, I was working in D.C. I was working for um, you know, telecommunications startup. So right. 
I right. kind of, had, you know, the thing was, I, you know, that was the thing. I had somewhat of a dream job, you know, with, with an MBA where I was telling my you know, friends about what I was doing. You know, it was with a venture capital firm. And there were five of us who started this company and it grew to like 160 people. It was, you know, everyone's like, oh, Rucker, how fun is this? And I was like, no, I'm not having fun. So, Rutger, it's only a dream job if that's what you dream about. Yeah, exactly. Right. You know, so, um, all right, so you you make you make the trip to uh, France. You look for sites in California. Um, you come back and just take me to the time, and you started getting into it when you look for a site and settle on a site. And don't get into everything after. I have a few questions, and then we'll talk about it. Okay. No. So uh, you know the, the main. It, what what case kind of is really basic, right? But what he he kind of um, taught me, or really the message I got was that um, you know basically water capacity, the, the water capacity of the soil was really paramount. Um, that you know, yes, in an area like Napa where it doesn't rain during the growing season, it might not be as important. But in an area like Bordeaux, where it does rain, you need to have very well-drained soils. I mean, that's kind of the fundamental thing. And when you looked at Virginia, the climatic data, when I started looking around there, it was of utmost importance to find a place that drained well. Um, right. So that was really kind of the first um, you know, mission or first mindset I had. Um, and what was great about in Virginia, that each county has a, a book of the soils that they did. And I remember flipping through it and, you know, looking in the, in, on the map saying, you know, wh where are the ideal rocky hillside soils? Um, and in the book, they always describe these, you know, series like Chesternet series, not suitable for agriculture. Right. That is <laughs> the spot I want right. to go to. Right. So I was lucky um, in the sense of the place where I stumbled upon where we ended up now, which is in the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains. Um it, it wasn't for sale, but I, I knocked on the door of the farmer. They were a fifth generation Angus farmer and um, they had this beautiful you know, hillside there. And I said, you know, is there any chance you'd be, you know, consider selling that hillside? And it took about a, a year of talking to them and, and um, you know, trying to share with my vision of what I wanted to do. Um, and we finally, or they finally agreed to sell it to me. And I remember, I called him Mr. John. Um, he's passed away since, but uh, at the closing, we were sitting there and we were the lawyers, you know, signing the papers. And he had to uh, announce. He said, "You know, Rucker, nothing is going to grow in that goddamn pile of rocks you're buying." <laughs> is that after you signed it or before? <laughs> I said, "Mr. John, I realize that it's music to my ears. Uh, you know, we are not farming for corn or for right, right, or grapes." I have an inkling that this is going to be something special. And we were very lucky because, you know, we use Bordeaux and, and that definitely is, is a benchmark. But I also really look to, you know, Napa and I have a lot of colleagues there. And the person in particular, uh, Daniel Roberts, um, is a soil scientist and he developed some of the best vineyards in Napa. And I called him up and said, hey, Daniel, would you help me uh, do it in, in, on the East Coast? Right. Um, I know it's a little different than Napa, but um, and he agreed, and and he you know came in with his team, Alfred Cass and a handful of other people. You know, we dug over a hundred pits, and so we really had a sense that that this was from a soil perspective a pretty you know, good place. What we didn't know um, was the impact of the weather. This was a, a big unknown still for people. But you had. You had some idea or you really yeah. were? Well, the two ideas, the ideas I had, like I mentioned, the two, you know, my two mentors in Virginia were Linden Vineyards and, um, it, it, it's, and then the other one was Barbersville. And both right. of those vineyards started in the, in the 80s. And both of them, you know, saw, uh, tried to find a place that made sense. But since then, we learned so much more. And I knew that if I could take what they did and what they were doing, and apply it to you know, the new knowledge with the new site that we could really, right. really move the needle forward. So plus more available, you know, 
data, research information, how to, you know, ascertain all of that. Um, I want to get into, you know, specifically the soils and the weather and all that, but I wanted to ask you a few questions. You know, the obvious question right now when I'm talking to my guests is, you know, how the pandemic has affected, you know, you and RDV this past year. Yeah, no, uh, in, in numerous ways, right? So it, for, from sure. the, when it first came on, right away, you know, we closed our tasting room down mm-hmm. and, um, you know, put a, put a pause on everything. But what we quickly realized is most of our wine, Sam, is sold through a, a mail, you know, to our mailing people, list, a mailing list. And yeah. all those individuals we are super grateful for, um, they all continued supporting us. So our two releases, you know, we do one in the spring and one in the fall, we, we did super well on. And then in August, we started slowly opening up the winery and ours is by appointment only, um, you know, it's right. like $100 per visit. It's a very high end. It's a very Napa-esque, you know. Right. So you, you can manage the flow even in yeah. a pandemic, right? Yeah, exactly. And what I was amazed by, you know, I thought, hey, you know, with this pandemic and people are losing jobs and this and that, that no one's going to want to buy a luxury product like ours. But that was not the case. Uh, we have, in fact, grown and, and have done very well because people aren't traveling to Europe. They're not going to Napa. And, and we found that they you know, our guests are coming to RDV for a little bit of escape you know, to, to get a sense yeah. of normalcy. So it's been very, I've been very touched by it, super grateful for it. Um, we look at our colleagues in the, you know, we work obviously with restaurants and, and you know, they have had a much more challenging time than we have had. And, you know, we're super grateful for, for our supporters. And so it's been, you know, our takeaway is one is that, you know, we really need to embrace our, our local community. Um, and, you know, two is that also, I, I never thought I would be doing Zoom calls, Zoom tastings, but that, that's another avenue of, of getting your message, getting your story of people learning about your wines. Right. You, you get, you do whatever you have to. So August, people started coming back, like you said, by appointment, um, you know, eventually you go into the winter We're we're approaching spring, you know, what happens? You, you manage that schedule you get a little closer to normalcy you didn't lose business as far as fall off you know where do you, you land on your feet in a pretty decent way you know we land, we we are now doing our uh spring release and um we're fully allocated so we haven't lost really any members we've gained in fact some right. people um and the weekends have been you know we we're actually you know it's a, we turn away people in the sense of that we have more right. people to come out than we have space for and that's kind of what we've always wanted to do, though, Sam, is deliver an intimate experience. Right. Uh, I remember visiting um, Harlan Vineyards, who you know, is another one. Yeah. Of the I mean, that's, that's uh, top of the game. Yeah. So the, their viticulturist, her name is Mary, and she's just outstanding. And um, I, I remember on the visit to her, we go and she, you know, we talk about the vineyards. And, you know, I love vineyard, vineyard, vineyard talk. So we walk and talk all about vineyard stuff. And at the end... She's like, oh, do you want to taste some wine? So it'd be kind of fun. Um, they, she said specifically about Bond, one of their projects, because they have different sites. I said, oh, I'd love to. Um, and then we walk into their tasting room, and it was like a hotel Four Seasons kind of ambiance. And I was like, yeah. wow, um, I thought you guys were closed. It didn't have this. And she goes, oh, no, our, our guests come and taste the wines. And that's when a light bulb came on. And I said, you know, we need to deliver people want to come visit us and and experience this so i I, you know thanks to them we've kind of you know created this what i would say world-class kind of fun experience for people to come and well uh, you 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 said it earlier unsolicited you know maybe at least twice you know that it's a luxury brand so if people are coming and and i guess the other thing was your worry was during the pandemic maybe because of price you know the mailing list would fall off but it shows you how loyal people are but the end point is you know if you're creating a luxury brand and people come to visit you you know you sort of want to match the experience with the product which is what harlan does too yeah Um, we've we've partnered with dom perignon so everyone walks in gets a glass of that and then not too shabby yeah we've all also which i think is great and a lot of people didn't understand it at first um 
we offer uh, like a, a wine menu, so to speak, that you could actually come, Sam, and drink some great Barolos at our tasting room. Ah, other wines. Smart. Yeah, other wines. And I think it's important because, you know, we have this stigma a little bit with Virginia where you're like, oh, you're making tourism wine. And we're like, no, um, our wine. Right. You know, it's not good point. Stuff, but we want to we want to be known, at, you know, as a world class wine. So if I'm pouring Gaia, it's a big honor that we're pouring Gaia at, at our winery. Right. <laughs> so that that that's a good segue to my next question, you know, because there's a lot of rich guys in Virginia making wine. And, and, you know, to their credit, not all of them are vanity projects, you know, but a goal to make world class wines, which, you know, certainly is you. Um, tell me a couple of things. You know, what do you want to accomplish at RDV? And let's say you and I are at the Ritz in Aspen. We get into an elevator and I go, what do you do? And you make wine and I go, oh, wine, that's cool. But in Virginia. So I say to you, all right, we're in the elevator. Give me the elevator pitch. Why should I buy a bottle of wine from a guy from Virginia versus, let's say, Napa or Bordeaux? You yeah, know, what? it's a very good question. And, and I'll be honest, like at the beginning, Sam, I thought, Everything, you know, Americans, let's say, they, their uh, knowledge of wine is, is just grown exponentially over the last several years. Um, right. That at the beginning, though, like in my dad's era, it was all about points. So in the perfect elevator speech, I'd say, yeah, we got 96 points. Oh, wow. the, 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 the Parker thing, right? Yeah, exactly. And then you would right. be, you know, uh, so that would have been like 96 points from Virginia. Wow. How about that? You know? So, but that's changed, right? And then now yep. you know, the, the thing is, hey, we make a world-class wine in Virginia. I never heard of Virginia. Oh no, well, we are in it, you know, rivals, the opus ones of the world, or, you know, the, the, the whatever, the, the Cosesternels of Bordeaux. And my argument is, is that it's fun to explore wine. That it's, it's the, the, yeah, there, there are hundreds of great Napa wines, hundreds of great Bordeaux wines. But what's so exciting now is the discovery of a new region, discovery of a new winery where it hasn't been done before. So typically our customers are risk takers. Um, right. My favorite one, Sam, are the, uh, we have a handful of bankers in, in New York City and right. they can buy any wine in the, they want in the world, but they take RDV and they put it, they go to a restaurant with their friends and make the sommelier put it in a brown bag or decant it. And then pour it and everyone's like, oh, wow, what a great wine. I don't, you know, so he says, guess what it is? Oh, I don't know, you know, really ripe Bordeaux or, you know, this is an old style classic Napa, you know, old school. And no one really knows. And then when they reveal it's from Virginia, you know, he looks like a hero and everyone's like, wow, I right. you could do that. So it's fun. And I love hearing stories like that. Those are your guys. I mean, the guys in banking and, and finance and Wall Street, all they want to do is bust balls, you know, <laughs> collecting and, and, you know, uh, blind tasting and all of that. So, I mean, yeah. it's good to have a loyal cadre of guys like that. No, it um, is good to because if you're 100% right in the elevator in Aspen, if you said, hey, I'm from Napa, oh, wow, cool. Or, you know, I'm in Bordeaux. Right. Cool. But if you're like Virginia, you kind of like, yeah, whatever. But, you know, I, I think people are willing to explore now and blind taste. And the other community that's really supported us is the sommelier community. And um, they have, you know, the, the master sommeliers out there or the experienced sommeliers that they, they taste our wine and um, show it to the guests. And, you know, we're super grateful for that. So to that point, you know, you talked about the mailing list. Are you trying to put out as much wine as you can, you know, to selected restaurants, you know, where you belong? So that's kind of Have you been able to accomplish, you know, get in where you want or that's sort of a battle because you're small, Virginia, whatever. So it's been, so there's two parts of there, two, two parts of answer. So the first part, yes, it had been or was a battle, a big battle. And it's taken about 10 years. And I remember even, um, in our backyard, my favorite restaurant was City Zen, um, and that was in the Mandarin in Washington D.C. And right. um, Dave McIntyre, he was a, or he is, the Washington Post journalist. He wrote the first article about RDV, and then he told me, "Oh, I, you know, the article got published, but I, the chef from City Zen wants to uh, would like to meet you." So he was giving me a heads up, very nice. 
So ah, I, I good reached one. out to uh, the, 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 the city then restaurant and talk, tried to talk to Eric, who was the chef. And it wasn't Eric. I didn't even get through to him. But as soon as they heard Virginia Winery, it was a click. Uh, hang up on the phone so it, <laughs> jenny and i decided to go there and and eat there um so we ate and we invited the chef over to our vineyard to show him and eventually eric came and now fast forward to today um not only is he a big supporter of ours he actually has a garden um at at rdb vineyards that he uses to source oh nice so, We've now Take, been welcomed in, in all pretty much the restaurants in, in Washington, D.C. and you know, the mid-Atlantic region. Right. And then if you ask me, hey, what's the next phase of, of Virginia or what do you want to do and contribute is really to take our wines to markets outside of the mid-Atlantic, to go to New York City, to go to Miami, right. to go to Aspen. And that's what we're saving wines to do that for. Okay. Um, we really so started... Sorry, go ahead. Is that problematic because you're only making so much wine as much as you'd like it there? I mean, you make a finite amount of wine. It, it, it's, it's not, um, it's not, it's, it's very small. Like, so we've been very fortunate and we started making before COVID. I mean, that's one of the negatives of COVID. It was you know, set back and it's more of the restaurants were really having a hard time, but we got into 11 Madison Park on the mailing list. We got into Danielle. So we got into some great well, good and, stuff. Yeah. And yeah. they don't, they're not moving cases and cases. You know? No, and, you don't want that. You want the association. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Off the, yeah. you know, I wanted to move a little bit. They get six bottles in a year. Well, they move six. Yeah. That's perfect. And that's all we want. So it really isn't, we can allocate wines and the way I look at it and the way our team looks at it is it's, it's, it's a marketing kind of investment. So yeah. Yeah, that's that's good. Um, I want to talk about the winery a little now. Um, and we talked a little about, you know, the physical aspects, attributes of it. But I want you to, you know, in a couple of minutes, so people can kind of visualize, tell me about where you are, you know, discuss the site. We talked a little about the soil, but, you know, you never use the magic word granite or whatever. Um Talk about the climate, which I know is a big friggin' deal. Um, and, you know, with grape varietals, you're dealing with, you know, a handful. Um, and I think, and you alluded to it before I did, there's some similarities to Bordeaux. So just, you know, s set me up, you know, about RDV. I'm taking a helicopter over and just tell me what's going on there. Okay. Well, we'll start at the White House, right? <laughs> okay. We're at the White House, and then we head out... Uh, west and and um with a car it's about an hour drive so we're very close kind of to washington dc and and our place is in the foothills of the blue ridge mountains so right you can, you can see from where we are the blue ridge mountains and it kind of you really escape you know dc and northern virginia the suburbs and you really move into the countryside um we're right next to a town called Middleburg, which is one of the you know, famous places for horses and fox hunting. And so it's a right. very bucolic environment. And then you approach RDV and what you will see is uh, in the foothills that this is a hill. Um, there are a series of hills. Um, and the range is actually called Lost Mountain, if you looked at it on a, on a map. Um, right. And most of the Blue Ridge Mountains is made of uh, greenstone. But they, you know, way back when, over the years, uh, you know, <laughs> millions of years, they eroded. And basically, these small hills in the foothills are granitic soils and extremely rocky. And like I said, if you look at the soil maps from the counties, they say these are areas not suitable for agriculture. So right. our hillside um, comes up there. So it's not that high. It's 800 and... Uh, 50 feet in elevation, but it has great relative elevation. So when you pull into our um, driveway, you're, you're at 600 feet. So it's a 250 foot gain in elevation and you have quite a commanding view of the area, which is, which is neat from a you know, visual perspective, but more importantly, from the air, we have a good flow of wind typically. Um, and, you know, the drainage when it rains, um, that water is is you know, evacuates from that site quite quickly because uh, of the granitic the granitic um, 
base underneath. Correct. Yeah. There's a little top, and so it doesn't hold the water. Correct. It takes. So we have this rock wall in our cave, and it kind of we we joke is kind of our indicator. But like now, it will be wet because of all the the rains and has been dry, or it, it, it takes a while to dry out. But by beginning of June, that rock wall stays dry. And then the other thing too is that when we talk about the challenges now of our climate is people typically think of humidity and rainfall. And that, that is true. Like we, we are, we get more rainfall than that of Bordeaux and in Bordeaux, you know, a great growing season is associated with a, a low rainfall growing season. Right. But one of the things is, and this is what we talked about, and I'm still in contact with Case and some other colleagues now at the University of Bordeaux. The question really should be asked though, is not only how much it rains per se, but the type of rain. So in Virginia, typically our rain events during the summer come in thunderstorms. So once that hill dries out in early summer, um, when we do get a rain event, it typically comes in a rainstorm and very little of that water gets available to the roots. It actually runs off because the soil is just so dry and it just sheds because it comes right. in a gentle you know, way it comes in a more violent, quick way. So right. um, we're able, and, and the question is why, why do people, you know, why do we want, I don't like when we just say we want to make our plants struggle and <laughs> right. survive, but the, the real essence to that is uh, the vine has two places to put its energy. It, it really can go into a vegetative growth and if it likes where it's growing, it will get bigger and bigger and that's its vegetative cycle. But what we want to do is convince the plant hey, where you're growing is not sustainable. It isn't a great environment. So what it will do during the growing season, it will actually stop its growth. It will no longer produce leaves and will redirect all its energy into its reproductive cycle. So basically formulate, developing and ripening its seeds and berries so that it can procreate and move on to a better place. And in an area like Napa, where you control the water, you can... Like right. God, it's easier to do, but in an area where you don't, you need to have that those drier conditions, so that or a hydraulic constraint, so that the plant will stop its vegetative cycle and put all its energy into its fruit, and that's why right. we're looking for those rocky soils. And when you talk about the fruit, um, because of the rain, the soil, the comparison to Bordeaux, basically you're dealing with varietals that are pretty much Bordeaux varietals, right? Yeah, so when we found the site, it's still, you know, Virginia's history goes back you know, to Thomas Jefferson, and even before yep. that, they, oh, the colonists, and you know, I don't know what, I'm not a, maybe exactly sure on the date, but it was like 1610, every male colonist had to plant vines in Virginia because England wanted to be independent from uh, France, and they saw these vine, you know, native vines growing in the trees. They said, okay, we're going to put some grape vines here too, or vinifera vines. Um, so there's a long history in Virginia, right? But, uh, it's still a pioneering place today, and it's a little bit. Uh, you know, I, I called to my uh, colleagues in Bordeaux. I say it's the wild, wild west. You know, there's no rules we can. So when I found the hillside, I said, okay, now let's think about the varieties to plant. We we did a tasting of Syrah the other week, and you know, let it know in there that you know it's one of my favorite grapes. Syrah. If you said, "What's your desert wine?" Right. Northern or, northern or southern Rhone. The northern Rhone would be on there. I would okay. Or right. um, I think it takes the the best of Pinot Noir and the best of Cabernet Sauvignon and blends it too. But um, what I like about the Bordeaux varieties and why we ended up there, Sam, is because. Just like in Bordeaux, we have unpredictable weather. Merlot, she comes in about two weeks before Cabernet Sauvignon. So everything in the vineyard kind of, if we have a bad fruit set per se conditions for Merlot, hopefully it'll be good for Cabernet Sauvignon and Cabernet Franc. Uh, and also if you know the rains come earlier in September, maybe our Merlot isn't so good, but then hopefully it'll dry out and the Cabernet right. will be better. And that's why you hear a lot in Bordeaux, uh, oh, this year was a left bank year. Well, that means that the weather right. favored that of Cabernet Sauvignon. So I, I took a lot of risk by being in Virginia, but I, I, I feel like I've mitigated a little bit by doing the Bordeaux varieties because, you know, we have four of them uh, and they all kind of 
have the, the, the key times for mother nature to be kind to us a little bit different. So it mitigates the risk. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Rutger, we got to take a quick break. Um, we're talking to Rutger DeVink. Rutger is the proprietor of RDV uh, Vineyards in Virginia. We're talking about Virginia wines and, you know, Rutgers Winery. Um, you're listening to The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch. The Hearst family has raised cattle on California's central coast since 1865. Today, Hearst Ranch's signature product is their 100% grass-fed, completely hormone and antibiotic-free beef. The Hearst Ranches have always treated their animals with great care. Their cattle live a completely natural existence as foragers and grazers. Well-managed grazing fertilizes the land naturally, sustains a seasonal rhythm to the ranches, and produces a remarkable meat whose flavor is the authentic taste of the American West. Hearst Ranch beef is available seasonally, May through August, in select Whole Food markets throughout California, and all year round at their retail locations in San Simeon and Paso Robles. And now, HRN listeners in Arizona, Nevada, and California can get Hearst Ranch beef delivered right to their door through Larder Meat Company. Go to lardermeatco.com and shop the 100% grass-fed box to stock your freezer with Hearst Ranch beef. That's L-A-R-D-E-R, meatco.com. Learn more about the storied history, farming practices, and conservation efforts of Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. All right, we're back. We're back with my guest, Rutger DeVink proprietor of RDV Vineyards. Um, I wanted to follow up on what we were talking about. I want you to talk to me about farming and seller practices. You know, you set up pretty clearly that Virginia has a tough climate and rain is probably amongst your biggest challenges. Can someone like you, where you are, practice any form of sustainability, organics, you know, do you minimally intervene in the cellar? Tell me a little about, you know, the growing and the making. Okay, so we'll start with the vineyard first. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think people have this connotation, like I said, humidity and rain, and, but if you choose a right site, you know, that I think that we have this similar challenges to that of Bordeaux. Um, you know, the, the two, I guess, or the, the main, I'd say the main pressure is, is downy mildew. It was a fungus, you know, right. That, so that would be our number one, um, issue, um, to deal with. But when you look at it, our spray schedule, when I first started compared that to some top chateaus in Bordeaux, we were spraying very similar, amounts of material and the same types of material. But what we actually found, um, the more, and I was in the Marine Corps, so I'll be true. I, you know, when I first came, I want, I didn't want to see one speck of anything foreign in that vineyard. So if I saw a <laughs> that's, point, that's the Marine in you. Yeah. I was like, Oh, yeah. kill that dandelion. If was, <laughs> yeah, I was so proud every year to say, you know, my first year is, Oh, we have zero, you know, you know, spores of fungus in our vineyard. How great is that? We're doing the right job. But we, and we were, like I said, copying very similar to that of a Chateau in Bordeaux. Right. Fast forward and, and having very uh, a nice influence from my uh, wife, Jenny, but then also our winemaker, Josh, um, we started asking questions like, hey, do we really need to spray so much? Um, we only have 16 acres. Uh, which is relatively very small and Josh and I can spray that vineyard in a couple of hours. So we can take a lot more risks. And then working with our colleagues in Bordeaux, we've moved to a much more um, sustainable, I guess, you know, practice where, where we have backed off quite a bit. And now I'm proud to show you, if you came, I can show you some spores. If you came and you'd be like, wow, Rucker, this is a why it's like, yeah, you know what, Sam, it's mother nature. You know? um, and you don't get a stress panic attack from that when you see it? No, no, no. I actually embrace okay. it. So okay. and we even took a step further. I don't know how my, we, we, 
then looked at biodynamics, which is kind of you know people, a form of organics, but to another level where you incorporate you know, moon phases and so I don't yeah. interested in it. And um, the why I, I met the winemaker at Ponte Cadet and his wine, he's a biodynamic and yep. wife consults. So we uh, had her come over for two growing seasons and helped advise us. So we kind of incorporated them. But at the end of the day, I I kind of think it's it's not so black and white. You know, it used to, when people say, are you organic? And you right. say no, then right away people think, oh, you're spraying all these chemicals. Or if you say, oh yeah, I'm organic, they feel like you don't spray at all. You know, right. we, we do have pressure. So the, the biodynamics solution and organic is, is sulfur and copper. But, you know, we did it for two years and, and that second year was kind of a wetter year where I was almost 40 tractor sprays. And I kind of was Jesus. like, that makes sense. And to me, it did it. So we'd balance, we'd take a little bit of everything. And, you know, I live on the farm with my family. Right. Um, I, you know, I guess walking through there. So I, I, I feel comfortable to say we're, we're doing the right thing. And, you know, I was very blessed to find this piece of land and I want to make sure I leave it to right. the generation in better shape than, than we got it. So what about in the cellar? In the cellar, we uh, <laughs> we are very Bordelais, and and it's it's good, and it's we're this is the next step in our evolution. So what I mean by that is, when we first started, we did exactly uh, oh Chateau Latour. Let me get I don't say your recipe, but how do you do the wine making? Right, and we copied that exactly. And our enologist Eric Bossano, he consults for you know, the, the four of the five first grows and about right. 80% of the classified gross. And he's been become a great friend and um, a great teacher to us. So we do very minimal, I would say minimalist approach, but at the same time, we still, so when the grapes come in at the beginning, the first two years, we did the cold soak, Sam, we did the extended macerations, right? hundred percent new oak. And we were thinking about doing 200% new oak. It was all the Marine in me. Like, more is cracked, <laughs> and right. as Eric came on board and started teaching us, we really want the vineyard and the grapes to speak for themselves. So we have backed off on. Um, we don't do a cold maceration. We bring the grapes in. We inoculate. That we do. We do control the fermentation. I worked at David right. Ramey's um, cellar. I worked. I apprenticed there one year, and I right. really appreciate what David does. He's he also is non-interventionalist, and he does not even add any um, the yeast. He lets it right. just self. We we're going to start experimenting with that too, um, but we do. Josh, you know, we like the control of that. But beyond that, it's it's sulfur, and sometimes the yeast need a little bit of uh, nutrition to get through the fermentations. Right. But beyond that, it's very um, old school. We do find our uh, wines and we use the traditional um, egg whites to do that. Right. And the thing is that where I said, we're kind of, what we used to do is also just with the barrel program. We're kind of, um, we looked and said, okay, what do you use these great chateaus? And we copied the exact barrels they use in the same toast levels. And now we're kind of, since 2016, we're starting to understand what makes barrels work with our wines and not necessarily right. work with Bordeaux. So what I mean by that is like Bordeaux, they like the barrels typically to add volume to the wine because they're kind of really on the struggling of ripening their fruit. We get ripe fruit and sometimes they, our young baby wines are almost too fruit forward. So we right. want to add a little bit more um or a little austerity to the wine. So we have been working with Coopers now to kind of get toast levels that will match or will work better with our wines. So that's kind of what I mean is like, we're taking what Bordeaux taught us, but we're adapting it to our conditions. Well, that's, you know, it's a process and you seem to be going in the right direction. And I also appreciate, you know, all your honesty and how you're doing everything there. Um, I'm curious, you mentioned Josh, your winemaker. How did, how did you and him come together? So Josh, um, I apprenticed, or I you know learned, or got first into the the in two thousand and one at Jim Laws at Linden Vineyards. Right. So um, I, you know, I was the, the the his first kind of uh, yeah I guess apprentice, and then Josh you know, followed suit several years later, and in two thousand and 
eight, when I, when we were making our first vintage, Jim approached me and said, Rucker, um, you should uh, consider hiring Josh as, as, as someone to help you at, at the winery. And originally my plan was to hire a winemaker from uh, the University of Bordeaux, but Jim right. gave me good advice. So I, Josh came on board in 2008 and has been with us. Wow. So, and he's grown a lot and he, he doesn't have a formal um, enology degree, but he comes with me on all my trips to Bordeaux. And right. he actually interned also in Bordeaux and then um, also did a stint in Tasmania. So, right. Uh, so he's got a good body of work. Good body. Um, we've, and we've been working with the same team, our vineyard manager, the vineyard management, the vineyard crew. It's, they've all been with us from the very beginning. And I think you start to learn a place and start to appreciate it. And uh, Eric, continuity, everything. Yeah. yeah. All right. So you basically. You basically make two wines, Lost Mountain, which you named after the mountain site, and Rendezvous. Um, let's start with the Lost Mountain. Um, tell me a little about that. You know, when you talk about making a luxury brand, you know, that's for sure your luxury brand. But yeah, tell me that. a little, yeah, and, and that's a good thing, you know. Yeah. Tell me a little about uh, this wine. So originally, I'll be honest, uh, Sam, is what we thought, again, we were very influenced from that of Bordeaux, and in Bordeaux you have your the, the Grand Vin, the the the, van, uh, the wine of the the Chateau, and then you had your second wine, and the second wine always had a name. Right. So in two thousand and eight, our first release, we just had RDV, which was the the, the Grand Vin, and then we had um, the uh, Rendezvous. Right. When we released it, consumers were a little bit confused and. Yeah, and, and blind tastings, a lot of them preferred the rendezvous and they didn't know what RDV was. They thought RDV, so it was confusing to everyone. So I, to simplify it, we decided to uh, come up with, you know, to name our, and, and to have a grand van for a, a little winery in Virginia doesn't make sense either. So we decided to name our flagship wine, Lost Mountain. And it's actually a funny story. Jancis Robinson came and she tasted the wines, and it was before I put the, the Lost Mountain name on it. And then she found out about it, and she sent me an email, and she'd been visited our site. She said, Rucker, not sure why you uh, changed or added the name Lost Mountain, and uh, not mount, not much of a mountain, would you say? <laughs> really on a hillside. Uh, but you know, we, we put the name on it, and it was really for marketing reasons. But the wine itself is our flagship wine, and the reason being is you know, this is what we think that, that we can do is our best expression of our site. And right. wine is intended to be aged. I'm not saying that you can't drink it young and early, but right. our goal is to have something very comparable to a, a top Napa or a top um, Bordeaux wine. And the, the grape that really ages for us is Cabernet Sauvignon. So is it a hundred percent or predominant? How do predominant. you do, how do you? Okay. One year yeah. where uh, Sam was almost ninety nine percent or ninety right, uh, yes, or ninety seven percent. So it's 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 predominantly Cabernet Sauvignon. And when we do the blend, uh, Eric is the one leading the charge, and uh, it typically starts. We build the base, and it, it's usually from one of our Cabernet Sauvignon blocks, and then we add to how, that. how many blocks are on the uh, the, the vineyard. vineyard. Yeah, we have 11 blocks and it totals uh, 16 acres. And, and that, that gives you different characteristics when you're talking about the blending, you correct. know, with the cab, right? Um, it, is, even what's so interesting, and this is the, the thing, and I remember my mom, who's not really a, a wine drinker or, you know, but I, she said, oh, you have Merlot, why, what's the big deal? But then I, we have three blocks from it, and I remember lining up those three blocks from her in three different glasses and I said just taste these three and we had walked earlier around with them and she's oh they taste so different and I'm like yeah that's Merlot but it's from three different parcels so we've been really lucky with our hillside that it isn't a, a homogeneous piece of soil it's granite that is the base right. but we have different aspects different soil depths different rock densities so we really have kind of a full palette that we can blend with and, and do you think do you think the granite does the granite have any effect on the wine? I mean, I hate to use the word minerality, but yeah, no, you know, it's, it's, it's a granitic wine. I mean, uh, there's some loamy soil there too, but 
No, and this is the so what I said about um, the water holding capacity is universally true. You can talk to any viticulturist and they will be in agreement. And but as in I think with a lot of things now comes the, the subject matter which is um, more nebulous and they have different opinions. So a lot of people like in Chablis say you can taste the Camerigen, you know, right. there. Right. Uh, I don't know, you know, but I can say, and we've had many people come through our doors. There's something about the granite that gives our wines energy. Th- again, this is ah, energy is a good word. Yeah, this isn't scientific what I'm saying here. So, you know, but this is just my feeling is, you know, you look at our acidities and our pHs. It isn't really where you're like, oh, wow, that's a high acid wine or, you know, you have low pH. But there's a lot of energy behind our wines and, and, and right. more like tension, you know, and, and that to me is I, I love those characteristics. And I, yeah, I, I agree. That, yeah, that'd be arguing with you or, or stating that I think the granite contributes to that. But again, from now, a scientific thing, I can't prove that or there's no. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. Um, and I think people would agree with you. The other wine you make is Rendezvous. Now, let me ask you this question. Lost Mountain and the Rendezvous, you're making big wines. Is one more, let's use the word hedonism, hedonistic than the other? Yeah, no, that's uh, so. Which which is the more hedonistic? It is the rendezvous. The All rendezvous. right, so then then go back for a second with me. Um, are we? And I'm not backing you in a corner here, but we're not making these big fruit bomb Napa unctuous wines, right? So if the rendezvous is a little more hedonistic, is the Lost Mountain, you know, a little more dialed back or stylistically different? I, I would say that the the Lost Mountain has more finesse and more nuanced okay if you tasted it like a lot of times you know we submit our wines to the you know wine spectator and and you know right wine and so forth and a lot of times more times often than not they rate them the same um, right and um and yeah at the, at the youth people like so with the lost mountain is a little bit more understated at its youth that it okay it really, when you drink and, and for me wines like chateau cheval blanc it's not a big wine. You don't go, oh, this is, and it's kind of it's understated. Uh, Chateau Palmer, all these like right. huge, uh, Comtesse de Love. The wines that I appreciate are these wines that um, you know they come out in the glass, come out over time. So that really is our um, goal. Is is to me the great wines of the world have power, but it's very very understated. Right. That's hard to achieve. <laughs> well, you see a lot more of that in Bordeaux than you do in Napa. And that seems, yeah. you know, where, where you're leaning towards. So the Rendezvous is a different wine because you're blending more grapes. More true? Grape. And it typically gets, uh, Sam, a third. It, it, every year differs, but a third, a third, a third is pretty much so. Okay. A third Cabernet Sauvignon, a third uh, Cabernet Franc, and a third Merlot. And what would have with that wine is is when we blend it, it's it really is uh, very approachable early on. It's hedonistic. It's funny when my uh, father has dinner parties and he serves our wine. He goes, people you know drink the the lost <laughs> normally, but when I serve that rendezvous, I have to get a lot more you know bottles per, for the party. <laughs> really, that's <laughs> that I thought it just it just goes down very. Uh, I don't know it's just a lot. It's a fun wine to drink. So just for curiosity's sake, which wine do you make more of? We, at the beginning, it was a, a third of our production, or a third of, you know, went into the blended wines, went into Lost Mountain, and two-thirds uh, rendezvous. Now, right. uh, that was, now as the vines have matured, we are able to do 50-50. Okay. Every year, um, which, yeah, but that that's the ballpark. Um, last question. Go ahead. No, no, then we yeah. have another wine that, that will we with things that don't make those blended wine. It's called Friends and Family. And that that really is kind of a, a fun, you know That's a good that's a good name. Yeah, and, and that family. wine goes so what happens is is like when you're a chef and you and you cook and you, you all of a sudden, you know, have half an onion. It doesn't mean it was a bad onion, but it didn't fit into right. the, the dish. Right. So that that goes into friends and family. And, and that's kind of right. like what we offer our ambassadors. And that really is kind of what I would consider a true second wine of of our place. That's cool. Um, Last thing before we jump into my wine list, which I want you to answer. When you got there, you planted everything. So you're dealing with a vineyard. And, you know, like you said, you were in Bordeaux. You're dealing with a vineyard with, what, six, eight, ten-year-old vines? 
you know what? Yeah, when we started, uh, we planted the vines in 2006. They were just all baby vines. They, they right. One year in the nursery, and um, you know, 2008 was our first harvest. But it took. We didn't even make the wine at RDV. We made it at a friend's place. And it took a while for the the vines to get um, what's it called established. And right. then I was very, it was actually really interesting. I was very, uh, how do you say that, uh, uh, triggered. I don't know what the right word is, but like when someone said, oh, young, wine, uh, young vines can't make great wine. Well, right. in the Paris tasting, the famous one in, uh, it was 73 or 76, uh, where, where, you know, uh, Montalena and Stag's right. did so well. Well, Stag's Leap, that was three-year-old vines that, that, that bottle came from. So I was, oh, I had all these anecdotes or these stories, how great. Right. You become very resourceful when you, yeah. you know, cause but you didn't have a choice. I mean, you were working exactly. from the ground up. Yeah. You know, now so, I can say, I'm okay I, with that. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not okay saying this just for marketing reasons, but I do feel like every year we improve our wines and, you know, of course the vintage dependent, but that comes naturally, you know, with another year on the vine. I mean, I can imagine exactly. 10 years from now, you know, yeah. when you have, you know, older vines, how the wine will change. And you, you know, you talked about being open about, you know, changing the process from going to an anal Marine to, you know, listening to people and moving towards what makes sense, which is kind of cool. All right. We're going to do the wine list. Um, Rutger, everybody that comes on this show is subjected to this. Five questions. Everyone gets asked the same five questions. Don't dwell on them. Don't fixate. Move quickly. Um, I will post them. Everybody loves, you know, what our guests are drinking. So the first question is, what are you drinking now? You know, what are you trying in Aspen? What's in your fridge back home? Are you changing because of the seasons? You know, what are a few things you're sipping now? Uh, Paul Roger Champagne. So Rosé champagne? No, no, Paul Roger. Oh, Paul Roger. Paul yep. Roger, uh, there, and, I, and we drink um, their house champagne. Um, okay. So good, I, good answer. I'm, I'm a big champagne guy. Anything else? Um, the other one we did a tasting on Syrah recently, and you know, I say that I, you know, for sure, Cote Rôti and uh, um, Hermitage is alright, but I, we, we got a wine. Um, Crow's Hermitage and uh, right. uh, Domaine de Colombier, uh, I think is a great value wine. And when you say value wine, I don't mean to be condescending, but I, I, I love No, it. I know what you mean. I'm yeah. going to ask you a question about value wines towards the end. Um, so the Paul Roger, uh, Syrah, Crow's Hermitage, the Colombier, good yeah. answer. All right. Um, you guys are into food and cooking and you do good presentations, um, at the winery and I'm sure you love tea. Give me your, not what you think is a good one, but what's your favorite wine and food pairing? What's that great wine that just goes with the food? You don't eat it every night, right, every week, we every month. Uh, I'm going on a limb that people will laugh, but I love sushi with a Bordeaux wine. And the reason being is because when I go to Bordeaux, they drink their red wine with everything. Yeah, they make a little bit of white wine, but uh, I, I, I'm like, you know what? I can do what I want. It shows my independence. But <laughs> but that besides being good. defiant, it it, it it tastes good, right? It tastes good, but I usually drink it with a second wine. You know, like so that the not like Fidel uh, Segur makes a great second wine called Frank. Um, yep, and I love having my wife and I gloat over sushi with a Bordeaux red. <laughs> that's a good one. I don't know if anyone's, I don't know if anyone's ever given us uh, sushi in Bordeaux. Yeah. Um, that's a good one. All right, right, third, I hear my sommelier friends just grimacing right now. <laughs> ask, screw him or her. Yeah. Um, all right. See if you can answer this for me and you could answer it involving any region, DC, New York, Aspen, any of your travels, favorite wine restaurant and or bar, a place you walk into, cool place people are knowledgeable cool wine list nice vibe anything come to mind you know without feeling like you're excluding anybody yeah okay well I'll, i have to say a couple sam so one would be kinship so kinship is the restaurant that eric uh, who was the chef at you know, right the, the French you owe him you owe him yeah but there's also like he has two places you know meche's his higher end one um but right kinship, his restaurant is just a great vibe when you said vibe it had a wonderful right. bar kind of area 
they do a lot of like family prayer. They have a wonderful uh, chicken dish that's done in family style. I took Michael Swatchy at Opus One. You know, he was in town visiting and we went there. So it's a great vibe. Um, the other place, it's, it's higher end, but uh, would be Danielle's in, in uh, New York City. I never would imagine that we'd be on a wine list there. Um, and he's been, you know, a, a great supporter. So I, I would say that it's a real honor and it always real excitement that once a year we go visit there uh daniel's a friend he's been on the show raj daniel johns they've all been on the show he has an amazing wine list and he's one of the guys that would put your wine on the list and also if you said can you get me a nice wine for a hundred bucks they won't grimace at you so that's a good one um all right fourth question favorite all-time wine the question was originally posed and structured as, hey, Rutger, what was like the most expensive rare wine you ever drank? Don't give a crap about that anymore. What's the wine that had an impact and effect on you? Not necessarily life-changing, but memorable and important. It was a 1994 Chateau Angelus. And it, it's you know, a good one, not a great year, but Chateau Angelus, St. Emilio. Yeah, great winery. But uh, the, it was more, you know, this is with wine too, Sam, it's, most, uh, it's really important, the company and the occasion. Right, that's why. So I was drinking that wine. I was, I had just uh, gotten out of the Marine Corps. Didn't know that okay. much about wine. Um, you know, in the sense of I drank it always as a, with, with my family, but went over to somebody through a friend, went over to this person's house. He had been um, my company, indirectly, but my company commander, uh, Captain Petit, and he opened up this wine. Um, and he was with a friend, Pete Petronzio, and both of them were forced recon. They were the baddest of the bad. And right. Sitting there getting out, and I was like, oh, yes, sir, no, sir. And they're like, hey, <laughs> sir, you know, call me Pete. And, uh, and I'll never forget that wine. And I was smoking a cigar with them and saying, how lucky am I? That, that that's a good that's how you answer that question it's funny a bunch of marines pull out an angelo that's and, and, cool but what's so funny about that sam too is so then one of the guys um pete petronzio he is today an ambassador of ours or you know we call our ambassadors our wine club member and he's oh, neat. our greatest supporter so i love how you know it, come, it came full circle good story all right last question this is i kind of get everyone to reach in tell me what you think the best wine value, wine values are around 15, 20 bucks. Give me a red, give me a white. It, you know, it could be category, like Muscadet is a great value wine and it's a good wine. Um, you know, you make a red that, you know, is a little upper, but I always say my kids are in their 20s. They can't show up at a dinner or give a gift with a crappy supermarket wine, but they ain't laying down, you know, 50 bucks. So how do you impress, you know, for 15, 20, 22 bucks? What do you think? For, I, yeah, so I, I, um, I would go with the red. It's easier for me. Uh, uh, Cote de Rhone. So a Southern Rhone. Big Good drink. answer. Cote de Rhone. I think those wines are they're fun. If you're also getting into wine, they're very easy to drink. Um, I, I like that. Food. So Cote de Rhone. And all the big guys in uh, the Rhone, you know, are making Cote de Rhones. Yeah. So yeah, you, you ask your favorite wine store or Sam to pick one. All right, give me a white. Yeah, Gigal. I'd throw him in. Guess, right. Gigal, Cote right. Rhone. Great value. Great wine. But uh, and then on the white, I, I you know I drink champagne but there's nothing cheap there uh i would go i, I guess maybe it'd be a little above the price range, but a chablis um there are some village and petite chablis i, I you know I like that to me has the acid has the energy like i really enjoy those wines like and i okay my dad when he goes oh well, you know white burgundies are so expensive you know he goes for the more you know the premier crew uh chablis but I think that's an, an area that is a safe area if I was looking on a list for a white wine. That's I, I accept that. Um, and, you know, we don't fault your dad for being a fancy pants guy. <laughs> All right, Rutger, I told you an hour would go by fast. We got to wrap up. Let me do a quick wrap up. I, I'll get a little info from you if people want information. So if you have a question, suggestion, wine happening or event, hit me up at Sam at the Grape Nation dot com. That's Sam at the Grape Nation dot com. Subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast. 
podcast on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Um, follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation, on Instagram, we're at SBenRuby, on Twitter, we're at BenRuby. I know it's confusing, but use the hashtag The Grape Nation on both. Um, we're trying to build a little community on Clubhouse, so follow us there at BenRuby. Um, as I mentioned, we'll post Rutgers Wine List um, with all those cool answers on our social media sites in the coming week. And Rutger, if people want to find more information about RDV Vineyards and you online on social media, where do we go? The best is our website, and that is rdvvineyards, okay. uh, vineyards with an S, dot com. Um, right. And it would be great if, you know, when we get back to a new normal, if people would come visit us. It really is a, yeah. a special spot. And I welcome everyone. The site is beautiful, and when you get on the site, you know, we didn't get into the physical part, the architecture and all that, but it's a special place, you know, in the Blue Ridge Mountains, so I encourage people, you know, to look at the site, um, and if you're, you know, in that area, to get over there. Um, I want to thank our guest, Rutger DeVink. Rutger is the proprietor of rdv vineyards thanks again to our engineer amanda and everyone at the heritage radio network i'm sam ben ruby and you've been listening to the grape nation the grape nation is powered by simplecast thanks for listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content subscribe to our newsletter Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.